this is Kim McLeides back with you with Advent Christian Voices. And uh, it is the 27th here of uh, June in uh, Waikiki and uh, Honolulu. And uh, we're continuing where we left off pretty much uh, in the Gospel of Luke. We're up to the second chapter, I believe the 21st verse and following uh, all the way up to the 31st verse. It's a little, somewhat of a long passage today. Maybe I should start by reading through that just so we can um, understand where we are. I'm reading actually from the um, English Standard Version. That's the one I generally have been using most recently. And this is about the presentation of Jesus by his parents at the uh, the temple, actually the circumcision and the presentation. Uh, and so if I start with verses 21, okay, that will get us where we want. It says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him out to, the, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your now, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. that You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Amen. That's about as much territories I think we'll have time to cover today. So we're going to stop there and we'll take over, not next week, I understand will be the following week. But uh, Luke doesn't tell us the story of the Magi or, or the uh, massacre of the infants uh, of Jerusalem or Bethlehem rather, or of the flight to uh, Egypt of Mary and, and Joseph with their newborn, uh, Jesus. He just says that after they had done everything, that is, Jesus and Mary had done everything according to the law of the Lord, they went back to Galilee, to their hometown of Nazareth. And when you read that, you almost are tempted to think that there's some kind of contradiction here between Matthew and Luke. So let me try to clear that up, first of all. As we said earlier, Luke was written in all likelihood uh, well after Mary, uh, Matthew. And when I say that, I mean, you know, probably maybe a few years after Matthew. 
was written. And, and in any case, Luke was very likely well aware of what was contained already in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, Luke was in all likelihood was aware that the Gospel of Mer- Matthew was to be considered as an integral part of what was then to be called the still growing uh, canon of Scripture. And not only that, but I'm sure he was also aware that the gospel was compiled, was he was compiling was also the word of God. That is that the work he was doing in writing the gospel that goes by his name was not just overseen by the Holy Spirit, but directed in its entirety by God. Therefore, he felt no compunction to include what was already included in Matthew's account, unless there was a specific reason for doing so. And his work rather was it had the purpose of supplementing what Matthew and Mark perhaps had already written and to uh, fill in those accounts, which may have been missing or lacking in certain important elements. He also had a different audience in mind primarily. It was not so much uh, the Jews he was writing to as it was the Gentiles. The Jews would have understood the significance of Herod's command to uh, wipe out the infants of Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph's flight to Egypt as it relates the actions of the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Jews who were living there in the time of Moses. And since they were looking for a Messiah who would be like Moses, they would recognize the similarities of such details of those two particular stories. On the other hand, the significance, um, that significance uh, to the Jews would have flown right over the heads of most of the Gentiles. Instead, they may have wondered why the Jewish religious leaders of the day had done so little to seek out the baby Jesus as did the Magi, and whose uh, apparent apathy, that is, of the Jews at the time, led in part to the ensuing massacre, which in turn would have reflected reflected rather poorly on the God they claimed to worship, at least from the perspective of the Gentiles' culture of that day. In any case, uh, Luke, for these and other reasons, chose to leave out that very sorry and from a Gentile perspective, perhaps a sordid episode in the life of Christ. What Luke's goal here is, is to provide witnesses to the deity of Christ, even as he was in his infancy, considered by those who knew him. And also to show that there is a connection between the arrival of Christ and what was expected of those who had put their hopes in the prophecies of the Old Testament, so that Christianity wasn't something that just came out of nowhere. So that's why he put so much emphasis on the fact that everything which his earthly parents did was to fulfill the requirements of the law of the Lord as contained in the Old Testament. They did that, according to Luke, because they were righteous in the sight of God and also because they understood who they were dealing with in this infant child that they had been given the great privilege and responsibility of caring for. The fact that they did these things bears witness to the that they knew who Jesus was or that they believed in Jesus as their Messiah. Now, you might say, if Jesus really was the son of God, what is the point of having him circumcised? After all, the institutions of circumcision were were supposed to be a sign of the covenant God established with Abraham and his descendants. And one of the primary things which the ritual of circumcision was meant to symbolize to the people of God was the spiritual need which they had to repent of their sins. Circumcision was the outward act of cutting off the foreskin, which was meant to symbolize the more radical and much more necessary act 
of a true and sincere and painfully felt inward contrition and sorrow of the soul, and for a true repentance of one's sin, so that one could then become a legitimate member of the family of God. Circumcision was actually just one of many reminders which the Jewish people had of their sins and of the need they had for a sacrifice to atone for those sins. Just about everything they did in their community as prescribed by God and the law of the Lord had this underlying theme and intention of reminding the people that they served a holy God and he demanded holiness from them as well. And such holiness always involves some means of being separated from the sins that were such an integral part of their nature. This is why Mary had to wait so long after the birth of Jesus to fulfill the days of her purification before she was allowed to go into the precinct of the temple. Again, why is the idea that it is even necessary to be purged from your sin? Because whenever a woman gave birth, her responsibility in the process of bringing another sinner into the world necessary when in this case the child they brought into the world was anything but a sinner he was perfectly innocent he was the only child who ever came into the world who was without sin completely so why the need for purification and the truth is that jesus really had no need to be circumcised mary would not have any need on account of her role in bringing jesus into the world of being purged or purified from her sin in doing so She was just actually being obedient to God here. But the reason they went through that process of purification and the ritual of circumcision was the same reason that Jesus was willing to be baptized of John in the Jordan River, as he said to John at that time, in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he was born, as Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So why was it necessary for him to be born under the law? Well, certainly not for his own sake, but for the sake of those who found themselves under the law. He was willing to identify those he came to save to the uttermost. He he did not save us simply by dying on a cross for our sins against God. He saved us by living the life that we were unable but required to live. It was only after having lived that sinless life in accordance with the law for a period of anywhere from uh, 35, I'd say, possibly even as long as 40 years or so, that he was now in a position to then offer that life as a sacrifice in the place of those who could not afford to do so. That way, God takes the righteous life of Christ and attributes to him all the sins of his unrighteous followers. So he can also attribute to all those unrighteous followers the righteous life which Christ lived. And in place of the unrighteous death that Christ died, God can accept that in place of what would have been the righteous death that we would have all deserved had we died for our sins. So it is the righteous in place of the unrighteous and the unrighteous in place of the righteous. That's what we call imputed righteousness, which God can now legally give to us. Now, the question has risen as to why did God pick the eighth day after the birth of the child to conduct the circumcision? Well, there's been much speculation on that account. Many speculative options have been offered. But the truth is that we just don't know for certain why God chose that day. 
We know that God also stipulated that one was not to take any lamb or young member of the flock away from its mother under eight days old for the purposes of making an offering of atonement. The circumcision ritual was also an atonement symbolizing that sacrifice, at least. It also makes sense that the famous the famous Jewish philosopher from the Middle Ages, his name was Maimonides, uh, he suggested simply that the child was not yet recovered fully from the trauma of childbirth and needed those eight days to gain the strength he might need for such an operation. One thing that certainly was not known to anyone uh, at the time this commandment was first given to Abraham some 4,000 years ago, uh, was the crucial role that a substance known as prothombin actually plays in the coagulation of blood. Prothombin, by the way, is produced in the liver, but its production is dependent on the presence of a catalyst we call vitamin K. Vitamin K, in turn, is produced in the body by certain probiotic bacteria normally found in the intestines. However, when a baby first comes into the world, it takes a certain period of time before the levels of such bacteria accumulate sufficiently in the intestines to be able to start producing sufficient levels of vitamin K. Recent studies have shown that prior to the eighth day of birth, the amount of prothombin present in the bloodstream may be insufficient to present, prevent rather excessive hemorrhaging were there to be a cut in the epidermis such as takes place during the procedure of circumcision. In fact, one study has shown that the levels of prothombin present in the bloodstream actually reach a maximum or a peak level, that is, which is in fact 100% above normal on precisely the eighth day, which would make it ideal for such a procedure. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I refer to you the work of Dr. S.I. McMillan in his book, None of These Diseases. And that's the way the Jewish procedure works on the eighth day. Now, if you're not a Jew, a lot of people like to get their own children circumcised for whatever reason. You may want to wait until the eighth day to do that, just for safety reasons. In any case, while it may take us 4,000 years to figure out, I would tend to believe that this was not something that God was unaware of when he prescribed this timing. And I'm sure there are many other things in the Bible which God tells us we should or should not do, which we may want to question from time to time. But I think if we really give God the benefit of the doubt, as he's proved himself to be on so many other occasions, we, things will work out for us. Now, in the case of Mary, whose period of purification was, according to the law of Moses, would have a little, uh, she would have been unclean initially for seven days, and then they'd have the circumcision. And then after that, she would have required another 33 days of purification in the case of the son, and twice that in any case with a daughter. And that's found in uh, Leviticus chapter 12. So it would not have been until Mary had fulfilled all those 40 days that they would have been able to present Jesus for his dedication, since he was not a Levite. They were also required to pay a redemption fee of five shekels since he was the firstborn. Every son that opens a womb is considered holy to the Lord. And so then they would have been required to offer a sacrifice, which was normally considered to be one of three options. In chapter 12, for the purification from childbirth, it only mentions two. That is either a spotless year-old lamb for a burnt offering, or if you can't afford that, then two pigeons or uh, young turtle doves. 
But in chapter five of Leviticus, it mentions a third option, which appears to be acceptable for, for uh, being purified from any form of defilement. And that is if you cannot even afford two pigeons or two turtle doves, you can choose to offer a grain offering consisting of about a half a gallon of flour. So Mary and Joseph chose the second option here, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, indicating that they were neither very well off financially, nor were they entirely destitute. This was after paying, by the way, the five shekel fee, which amounted to the equivalent of several days of labor for a hired hand. So they did the best they could. They, their offering, in fact, was a testimony of their own faith in God and to their belief that their son was indeed the son of God. By the way, they didn't have to do all this at the temple. They could have found a priest closer to home where uh, these things could happen, but I suspect they wanted to do it at the temple because of their devotion to God and their desire to please him and offer to him uh, the best they had. And it's a good thing they did, too, because when they did, God sent to them a couple other witnesses that we don't read about in any other gospel <clears throat> accounts, but whose testimony, nonetheless, is very important in affirming the fact that their son is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And they were, of course, uh, Simeon and Anna, two more witnesses, which the word of God describes as being righteous people whose lives were dedicated and consecrated to the service and honor and glory of God. So both of these witnesses were said to be, are presumed to be, if not said, certainly well advanced in years. In the case of Simeon, he said that he was ready now to die, essentially, in that he had been waiting for his this event before that could happen, indicating that he had been waiting for some time since it had been revealed to him that he would live to see the Messiah. And so he knew he apparently could not die before he would have seen the Messiah. So how long that was, we don't know. But just the fact that he mentions this implies that he was glad that his wait had finally come to a close and he doesn't have any uh, reservations now about leaving. In fact, he prays, asking that he may now depart in peace since he's been apparently, or he's apparently fulfilled that mission which he felt called to testify to, which was apparently in his mind a major mission for his life. That he was depicted here as being righteous and devout in the sight of God indicates that he was one of the very select group of individuals living at the time in Judea, uh, who were among what the Bible refers to as the remnant of believers. Now, to get an estimate of what we're talking about here in terms of how select a group that was, you only have to look to see how many believers there were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, only 120 faithful believers waiting in obedience to Christ's command. This is despite all the miracles he had performed, including his resurrection from the dead. Still, there were only 120 followers. Then, so we can guess there were not too many more around when Christ was first born. Just a very select few. Now, Simeon's name was very common. That was the name that Leah's second child had received. It was also the name of the tribe of Israel associated with that patriarch. And their inheritance uh, land-wise lay somewhere in the south of Judea in the region of Beersheba. Leah named her son Simeon, her second son Simeon, because she felt that she was being mistreated at the time by both her husband and her younger sister, Rachel. 
The text says that because she was hated, she named her son Simeon, which means, by the way, God hears. So it reminds us of what God told Abraham when he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God had heard the report of the wickedness going on there. and He had come down for himself to see. Or of the time when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush when he told him that he had seen the affliction of his people and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. They knew of their sufferings. The name God hears is a reminder that God knows about the injustices being done to his people and that being a God of justice, he will eventually set things straight. Well, the Simeon in our passage for today was certainly living during such a time when God's chosen people were enduring no small degree of suffering and oppression at the hands of their Roman overlords. As he says in his prayer, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. And what seems as if he's looking forward to his departure so that he may be relieved the thought of having to continue enduring any more of the misery of merely existing as a devout Jew under Roman occupation. And we don't know what were the details of the meeting, which had been sovereignly arranged by the Holy Spirit between Simeon and the parents of Jesus as he was being brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord after that period of purification. Jesus must have been about 30, 40 days old. There was surely a large crowd of people milling around, perhaps a thousand or more, in the court of the women, which was as far as Mary was allowed to go. Um, they may have been waiting in line for an opportunity to speak with a priest so they could pay the five shekel redemption fee for Jesus and Simeon may have had some other business needs uh, concerning the ministrations of the priest, for which he may also have been waiting behind them in line. And perhaps they were sitting on a bench that was provided or standing either way, and Simeon complimented the young couple on the bundle of joy they had in their arms, which was their obvious new arrival, the infant Jesus, possibly inquiring as to what they had named him. I can imagine how the conversation uh, that ensued unfolded to Simeon's amazement, in which Mary and Joseph perhaps told the story of how Jesus came into their lives and how and why he had been named as he was, in obedience to the angel's command. I would not at all be surprised had they mentioned how the shepherds told them of the heavenly host appearance and declaration on the very night of his birth. Something along those lines would seem pretty much in keeping with how God normally operates in his self-disclosures through the testimony of his servants, which when combined with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is all that's necessary for God's light to shine into our hearts. In any case, the important thing here is that Simeon was convinced of the truth of these things, and he adds to them his own testimony, which includes a very important prophecy, for it's obvious that Simeon is a man intimately acquainted with the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah from chapter 40 and following. Simeon recognizes that this baby is the fulfillment of everything that he'd been waiting for for his whole life to see. The text says that Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word is the same base, by the way, as the one Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, also translated as the comforter or the advocate, which he says he will send to them after he's left so they won't be left as orphans or feel abandoned. Simeon had been relying on those promises of God, particularly in Isaiah and other places where the prophet writes, for instance, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, for she, she has received 
from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And then in verse 5, afterwards, it says, and the glory, this is chapter 40 of Isaiah, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If we go on in Isaiah uh, chapter 41, 17, Isaiah continues the prophecy to the people of Israel and, and says, there, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Well, who is the Holy One of Israel? Well, about that, there's really no question. He's none other than the Lord God Almighty. So when Simeon tells Mary and Joseph that their son shall be the glory of Israel, it would appear that he recognizes the very deity of this little babe they are carrying in their arms. Simeon doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that he will also be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And this may be some new information for the couple. They had been as familiar with, had they been as familiar with the scripture as he, they should have known about this. But this was the promise, actually, to Abraham from the very beginning, that in his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But again, Isaiah elaborates on this blessing when he says that to those who sit in darkness, a great light has been shown. That you should certainly know that the Gentiles are the one being described here by the phrase, those sitting in darkness. They are in darkness about all of what God has been doing through the nation of Israel from the moment of its very conception. They are in darkness about all the promises of the Old Testament that God has been giving through his prophets for the past 2,000 years almost. And they are in darkness about all of the greatest prophet, the source of all the, the greatest promise, I should say, the source of all the other promises of all that God has promised was to send a deliverer, a savior, to send them, to save them, I should say, from the consequences of their sins. And this little child being carried in the bosom of Mary actually is. And Isaiah repeats this theme in numerous places, 42.1 describes the servant of the Lord as bringing judgment for the Gentiles. 42.6 says, uh, I have given thee as a covenant of the people or a light to the Gentiles. 49.6 says, again, it's too light a thing for my servant to raise, raise up and restore Israel. I will also give you as a light for the Gentiles. And 60 verse 3 has, the Gentiles shall come to thy light. Verse 5 of that chapter says, the Gentiles shall come to thee. So looking back from our vantage point, we can certainly see how this prophecy has been fulfilled over the past 2,000 years in that indeed every people group in the world today have has had at least some believers within them, if not a by now vibrant congregation. In fact, of the more than 2,000 known languages in the world today, there are very few, if indeed any, that are yet without some, at least some portion of the scriptures translated into them. Now, up until this time, everything the couple, Mary and Joseph, has heard about their son has been pretty much about the wonderful things they can expect to see happen through him. But Simeon adds the first note they hear possibly of the very great tragedies and disappointments they can also expect. At this point, Simeon makes his address specifically to Mary because by the time these things, I suppose, happen, Joseph will no longer be around to see them. And we know that Joseph died sometime before Jesus was crucified and probably before he even began his ministry. And Simeon points out to Mary that her son is destined 
to be the source of the rising and falling of many in Israel. And that's because of the tremendous darkness that currently exists in the nation of Israel, the apostasy, the hypocrites, and especially among the religious leadership of the time, which has been for the most part taken over by those who've seen it, nothing more than a means of self-aggrandizement or self-enrichment. So what happens to such darkness when it's exposed to the light? Well, they're exposed uh, for who they really are. And that is certainly not something they're going to take sitting down, as we shall see. Consequently, Simeon forecasts that there will be this spiritual battle and Mary's own heart will be pierced, as we shall see it as well. Starting, for instance, from the time when Jesus was just 12 years old, he stays behind at the temple without so much as letting his parents know about it. So why would he do that to them? Well, as he apparently expects his earthly parents to know that he must be about his father's business. As we shall see, this tendency of Jesus expressed later in the Gospels of distance, purposely distancing himself from his mother, initially referring to her not as his mother, but a, a woman when addressing her telling his disciples who his real mother is, that along with his real brothers, that is, being his disciples. Of course, these words, I'm sure, don't go unnoticed by Mary, and as painful as they may be to hear, I'm sure, as anyone who has ever been a parent will testify, they do not in any way diminish the love one holds in their hearts for a child they raised. The greatest disappointment, however, of all, for Mary must be in seeing the rejection which her son will bear from the nation, her beloved, her own beloved nation of Israel, from assuming his rightful role as their king, which she knows all along he really should be. So Simeon admonishes Mary with those very somber and sad words that her heart will be pierced, which she needs to hear. And I'm sure being as she is a model for discipleship, she takes very seriously. As much as she may want to be the one to save her son and spare him from the anguish of the cross, of course, Jesus would have none of that. It was ultimately he would have to be the one to save her. Well, I see that really pretty much brings us to the end of our time that we have allotted for today. So let's just say a quick prayer and I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. This, Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for the sacrifices that were made in order that we may enjoy all the blessings of our redemption, while ultimately it was the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross which made our redemption possible. Help us not to forget that there were many others along the way who also had a part to sacrifice in many ways that would even make that sacrifice possible. And we thank you for those as well. For the example of Mary as just one, although a very special one, and of your many humble servants along the way, including Simeon, and others, including Anna, who bear witness to the truth of your salvation, who is the glory of your people Israel and a light for, for revelation to the Gentiles. Help us to be willing to do our part in letting that light shine through our own lives as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is Kim Nicolaides. I'm signing off with Advent Christian Voices Day here in Waikiki. And... Uh, Please uh, leave a comment or question or concern if you have any, and uh, I'd be glad to respond to that.